0: good morning everybody and i really wanted to thank the pain week organizers for giving the International Pelvic Pain Society attract this year and having the opportunity to share um, some information specifically on chronic pain conditions that affect uh, women. So um, just a brief show in the audience, I know this is a fantastic conference because it brings together providers all across different disciplines that um, take care of patients uh, with chronic pain. How many in the room are primary care providers that see Pain patients and not pain patients. And how many people in the room um, uh, see patients in like a subspecialty pain clinic? Okay, great. And then are there physical therapists, pharmacists? Great, and then any gynecologists? Urologist, okay. Well, excellent, okay. So if this were for gynecologists, this might be a little bit basic, but I think um, for people that don't directly do surgery and or um, are the primary providers for uh, women with endometriosis, then I hopefully you'll find um, some of this information in this talk uh, helpful. So these are my disclosures. I am a consultant uh, for both AbbVie and MyAvant uh, on chronic pelvic pain uh, design uh, studies for uh, research studies and I am currently the president of the International Pelvic Pain Society. So the learning objectives this morning are going to be threefold. We're going to try to identify multiple causes of chronic pelvic pain uh, with the ultimate goal of improving the differential diagnosis of endometriosis-associated pain. I'd like to then summarize a little bit of evidence regarding the current emerging options for the treatment of women with endometriosis, and then explain at the end how to individualize treatment and long-term treatment options in women uh, with the ultimate goal of improving uh, pain as well as quality of life. So, I'm going to start with a clinical scenario. So, this may or may not be a patient uh, similar that you've seen before. So, let's talk about Megan. So, Megan is a 25 year old G0. In our world, that means Gravita Zero, meaning she's never been pregnant before, who presents to your office with complaints of progressively worsening pelvic pain. She has no medical problems. She's never had any surgery. She's always had crampy pain with her periods, but they've been becoming progressively worse, and now her pain starts about two to three days before her period, and it seems to be lasting longer and longer. She's always taken ibuprofen with her menses, but it doesn't seem to be helpful anymore, and she's very frustrated. She's fatigued. She can't sleep, Um, and she's crying and asking for help. So how many of you have seen a patient with similar symptoms um, like this? And then what we're gonna try to talk about are what factors you might need to consider when evaluating a patient with such symptoms. What would you do with this patient? And then when should you refer to a gynecologist? Because a lot of these symptoms, I think, can be very well treated in a primary care office. So I'd like to start by talking about some basic definitions that we use in reproductive health and the two most important definitions that we talk about when talking about pain in reproductive health is dysmenorrhea and chronic pelvic pain. So dysmenorrhea is defined as having painful menstrual cramps of uterine origin, and the pain is generally limited to the time of menstrual bleeding. It can start a couple days before the onset of bleeding, but in general, most women just have pain during their menstrual cycle. so it is a type of inter and pain. But when this progresses to a persistent pain, this is what we define as chronic pelvic pain. And we define this as non-cyclic pain that has been occurring for six or more months duration. And it localizes basically anywhere to the anatomic pelvis, anterior abdominal wall, low back or buttocks, and is severe enough to cause a functional disability or lead to medical care. Now, most women that have chronic pelvic pain, not all of them, will have exacerbation of their symptoms during the time of their menses. But what distinguishes women that have chronic pelvic pain, from those that just have dysmenorrhea, is that their pain occurs not only with menses, but at other times throughout the month that are unrelated to their menses. So the epidemiology is that dysmenorrhea is actually the most prevalent pain condition in women. This affects anywhere between 45 to 90% of reproductive age women, and is severe enough to cause significant disability in up to a quarter of women. Whereas chronic pelvic pain probably affects about 15 to 25% of women in their reproductive years. But this is probably underreported. We know from epidemiologic evidence from the United Kingdom that only about 25% of women uh, who were surveyed had ever reported or had sought treatment for their pelvic pain. So we're probably just hitting the tip of the iceberg. Uh, Chronic pelvic pain definitely negatively impacts the quality of life and physical function. Um, Amongst care and gynecology clinics, this is 10% 10 of women that present to our clinics are there to talk about pelvic pain. This is the number two indication for hysterectomy. About 12% of hysterectomies are performed for pelvic pain, and about half of diagnostic laparoscopies are performed for the evaluation of pelvic pain. Women with pelvic pain use more medications. They have four times as many surgeries as women without pelvic pain, and they're about five times more likely to end up with a hysterectomy. And they really suffer a lot. They report reduced quality of life. Up to 26% of women report staying in bed at least one day per month because of their pain, so they're not leaving their houses because of their pain. 15% report lost time for work, and 50%, even if they show up to work, report reduced um, productivity so why is pelvic pain so challenging i mean i think chronic pain in general is challenging so this is not new to any of the providers in here um and that we need to uh you know have patients as well as tools to help these patients but one of the particularly challenging things about chronic pelvic pain is that it is not an anatomic diagnosis so Chronic pelvic pain is a symptomatic diagnosis, it is nonspecific, and it can arise from almost any organ within the pelvis, both somatic as well as visceral. So a a precise diagnosis is often elusive or difficult to find, and we know that there's a lot of crosstalk between organs, and so there's a lot of nonspecific symptoms that it's very difficult to tell the difference between Uh, GI-related source of pain, a bladder source, reproductive source, etc. Even if we have a specific diagnosis, there are a lack of effective durable treatments for these patients. So even if we know what we're treating, we don't have fantastic treatments that cure all patients. And in general, unlike most of you here, there's inadequate training in pain management and evaluation um, in medical school and in residency. So I didn't actually learn anything about pelvic pain until I did a fellowship. I would say even within obstetrics and gynecology, we do a very poor job job of training our clinicians in the evaluation and management of pain. So when we think about chronic pelvic pain, the only point of this slide is to say that a lot of different things can cause chronic pelvic pain. So there are multiple conditions, and this is just probably the most common conditions. The list actually can be much longer, but there are a lot of conditions within the reproductive tract within the bladder, within the gastrointestinal tract, within the musculoskeletal system, as well as central nervous system causes that can end up with symptoms of chronic pelvic pain. And what we're obviously not going to be able to do is talk about all of these conditions, but we're going to focus specifically on endometriosis. So endometriosis is the most prevalent condition found in women that report either painful periods and or chronic pelvic pain. And it is defined as an inflammatory estrogen-dependent condition that has both stroma, which is out here in these cells here, as well as glands, anywhere outside of the uterus. So anytime you see stroma and glands outside of the uterus, so on the parotid, services in the bladder and the bowel um, that is defined as endometriosis and just to give you perspective this, I know these pictures are kind of hard to see. This is what a normal uterus and ovaries look like at the time of laparoscopy. So this is a camera at the belly button. We're looking at a normal-sized uterus. These white structures on each side are the ovaries, and these tubular structures here are the fallopian tubes. This is the sigmoid colon, and the bladder would be here. And this is what stage 4 endometriosis might look like. So this is the uterus here. This is the ovary, there is extensive adhesive disease between the ovaries and the uterus, there's probably some endometriosis involving the bowel here. And so this uh, disease can really uh, alter structure as well as inflammation within the pelvis. So endometriosis is a highly prevalent condition, it affects about five million women in the United States and about 180 women globally. The highest incidence is in young reproductive age women between the ages of 25 and 29 years. But the challenge of endometriosis is that the prevalence isn't exactly known and very much depends on the population that you look at. So amongst reproductive, all reproductive age women with or without symptoms, we estimate that it probably occurs at about 10% of women. But if you look at women that have subfertility or decreased fertility, it probably occurs in about 30% of women. And then if you look at women that have chronic pelvic pain um, and do surgery on them, about 60% of women, have endometriosis. This is not a disease that's limited to adults. So if you look at adolescents with chronic pelvic pain, it's actually highly prevalent as well. So even in the young teens, about 50% of young girls that have painful periods and or uh, chronic pelvic pain can, uh, are found to have endometriosis at the time of surgery. Now, there are no clear racial dispositions. We don't have any evidence to suggest that this is more or less prevalent in any specific racial uh, group. Um, And the other challenge of endometriosis is that the symptoms vary widely. So the most common symptoms, if you are to have symptoms at all, is some type of pelvic pain, Most women have some type of painful period, but many women can have chronic daily pain. Many women suffer from dyspareunia or painful intercourse, as well as dyskesia, which means pain with bowel movements. And you can see that probably the most common combination is to have all three, pelvic pain, dysmenorrhea, as well as painful intercourse. But any combination is actually possible. And we estimate that up to about 10% of women that have endometriosis have no symptoms at all. So endometriosis is a leading cause of gynecologic hospitalizations, the leading cause of hysterectomy, or the third leading or second leading cause of hysterectomy, and it really is associated with huge healthcare burden, both because of direct health costs as well as decreased uh, productivity per patient. Um, And patients suffer greatly. In addition to having pelvic pain, we know that this is one of the most common reasons for both infertility as well as increased adverse pregnancy-related outcomes. So these women are more likely to miscarriage and more likely to have complications during their pregnancy. Um, And their chronic pain, like many chronic pain conditions, are associated with behavioral, sexual, as well as emotional consequences. And the other thing that we're beginning to learn is that women that have endometriosis, particularly endometriosis involving the ovaries, do have a higher lifetime risk of developing ovarian cancer. Um, And so there are a lot of other health uh, consequences associated with this condition. Now, while we know a lot about the endopathogenesis uh, of endometriosis, we actually don't know everything. And so we think that most women, not all, that have endometriosis probably arises from retrograde menstruation. So menstrual blood that's in the uterus passes out through the fallopian tubes and deposits in the pelvis. Now, if you did surgery on women that, were on their periods, over 90% of women will have blood in their pelvis at the time of their periods. So the difference, though, between women that have endometriosis and women that don't is that they have significant immunologic defects that basically don't allow their body to clear these these uh, implant, clear these uh, tissue cells. And so there are immunologic defects, alterations in cell adhesion, inflammation, neovascularization. These are often driven by both systemic as well as local estrogen, and they're modulated by genetics and environment. And so these tissues implant, you know, in different peritoneal services within the pelvis, they bring in blood supply, they bring in nerve supply. And we think that this uh, uh, a big inflammatory milieu increases their proliferation, which ultimately can cause endometrial, uh, normal endometrium dysfunction, uh, toxicity to sperm, which probably leads to infertility. And we think that somehow this probably is associated with pelvic pain. Now the classic assumption, you know, in the way that we're all trained as uh, medical students is that the most common cause of pain is nociceptive, meaning that the pain arises from actual threatened damage from peripheral tissue. And it certainly makes sense that these endometrial tissues, they have uh, nerve fibers that infiltrate them, they have cytokines or them, inflammatory cytokines that might stimulate these nerve fibers. They send a signal through the spinal cord up to the brain that causes a perception of chronic pelvic pain. But like many other chronic pain conditions, we know that this is probably not entirely the case. Um, we've known for a very long time that the relationship between endometriosis and pelvic pain is not entirely explained by the lesion. There's very minimal relationship between the extent or location of disease with pain. So I see lots and lots of women with one or two tiny little implants that have severe daily pain. I see a lot of women that have stage 4 endometriosis, like those pictures there, and have little to no pain at all, and every single combination in between. And I'm sure if you saw, you know, made the same comparison with low back pain patients and their MRI findings, the the lack of correlation is exactly the same. Um, There's no consistent relationship between inflammatory markers, nerve fiber density, or pain symptoms, and pain often frequently recurs following medical and surgical treatment. And even if we go back and look at a second surgery in patients that have recurrent pain, many of those women don't have any evidence of recurrent endometriosis. So there's no significant correlation between having recurrent pain and recurrent disease. And so, um, just like we're beginning to learn from many other chronic pain symptoms, uh, syndromes, the, the mechanism of nociceptive pain doesn't entirely explain the pain experience of uh, patients. And so, we know that the brain has a powerful ability to both downregulate and upregulate pain signals. And I think the more modern view of pain is that pain is not an output of, you know, pelvic or peripheral pathology, but it's actually an output of the brain, and that the brain has a profound ability to either turn up or turn down the signal, and that in patients that have some sort of central nervous system defect, such that that signal is turned up, is broadly referred to um, as central sensitization or a central pain syndrome, um, in which the, the brain plays a powerful um, a mechanism in which the patients experience pain. And so um, at our in our research group within the University of Michigan, we've done quite a bit of work to try to understand whether this actually affects women with endometriosis. And what we've found um, with my collaborators is that we know that women with uh, pelvic pain and endometriosis are more p- pain sensitive at non-pelvic sites, so not just in their pelvis, but in their upper uh, body, well away from the pelvic area compared to pain-free controls. Um, we know that when we do brain imaging studies, similar to what we see in other chronic pain conditions, such as fibromyalgia and painful bladder syndrome, they have decreased gray matter volume in pain regulatory areas compared to pain-free controls. And that when you look at the function um, in those pain Regulatory areas. They have increased levels of excitatory, uh, uh, sci- excitatory uh, neurotransmitters, as well as increased connectivity or sort of talking between pain regulatory regions. And one of the unique things that we've done in our study is that we've looked at patients that have pelvic pain, with and without endometriosis. And we've actually also looked at women that have endometriosis, but are relatively pain-free. And that these changes occur really only in the women that have pelvic pain, regardless of the presence or severity of endometriosis. And we don't see these findings in women that have relatively pain-free endometriosis. So it's really probably the pain in some way that's driving these central, or that are correlated with these central changes, rather than simply the presence of endometriosis. But one of the unexpected, things that we find what that we found in our study which we really didn't go in with a, uh, a priori hypothesis is is there anything that we see in those pain-free endometriosis patients that might explain why they have such little or no pain at all despite having significant pelvic pathology and in these subgroups of women actually the vast majority had stage three or stage four endometriosis and what we found was is they looked very similar to healthy controls in that they didn't have those decreases in gray matter volume that we described in the other patients. They didn't have those changes in um, uh, neurotransmitter levers that we saw in the other patients, but the one unique thing that we found in these patients is that they actually had larger gray or increased gray matter volume in the periaqueductal gray, and so for those of you that uh, know much about um, sort of brain anatomy and brain function, the periaqueductal gray is a region in the brain stem that's uh, thought to be very uh, important in uh, anti down downregulation or nociceptive downregulation or sort of basically the ability to turn down the signal on pain information. And so the question is, is, you know, do maybe patients that have significant pelvic pathology or other pathology, do they have sort of some ability because of brain mechanisms to turn down that signal such that they don't experience the pain? So do they have these adaptive changes? So this is pretty interesting, just in a very small study, and we haven't replicated it yet, but certainly something that is consistent with the clinical picture that we see. So, the next question, so we're going to shift back to clinical work is so, how do we fit these pieces together and how should we evaluate and treat women with pelvic pain? So, we'll go back to Megan, the young woman that has increasingly painful periods. And she had a urine pregnancy test, which, you know, every woman should have a pregnancy test pretty much they get it for any complaint they have. Um, and the next steps um, really are similar to anything that you would do in any chronic pain patient, is take a very thorough history uh, and then physical. And what we seem to, so the International Pelvic Pain Society has a comprehensive intake form that's specifically designed for the evaluation of chronic pelvic pain, but really the main issues are is where is the pain, what exacerbates the pain, what relieves the pain, do they have any associated GI or GU symptoms, and do they have any other pain syndromes throughout their body, and then how does this affect their life in terms of their mood sleep as well as function. Um, this, This table is meant to sort of show that like we had implied previously, the symptoms of endometriosis are nonspecific. And while these are the most common symptoms that you see in endometriosis, pelvic pain, painful periods, these are all the different conditions, just sort of the top conditions that are also likely to cause the same exact symptoms. So when you think about chronic pelvic pain, we also have to think about irritable bowel syndrome, painful bladder syndrome, myofascial pain. When you think about Uh, dysmenorrhea, we think about adenomyosis, urine fibroids, et cetera, et cetera, and so there's nothing very specific or unique about the symptoms of endometriosis that help it in and of itself distinguish it from other uh, etiologies of pain. So the next point is the physical exam, and the physical exam, like any patient, is first assess their mood and affect. I think this sort of tells you a lot about the burden of their symptoms. Um, the next thing that we do, even as gynecologists that specialize in pain, is the pelvic exam is the very end. The very first thing we do is a musculoskeletal exam. And I don't pretend to be like my PM&R colleagues an expert. I really just try to say, does this person need to go to um, a musculoskeletal specialist? Do they need to go to physical therapy? Um, are there other areas of pain outside of the pelvis um, in the abdominal wall? And then... Um, that might be contributing to their symptoms. Um, We then do an external vulvar exam, particularly for the patients that have painful intercourse. I think probably the most useful question that you can ask in patients that have painful intercourse is your pain with entry, is it with tampon insertion, or do you have pain with deep penetration? Because the differential diagnosis for each of those things while they overlap um, can can help distinguish it. But in patients that have entry pain, we think more about vulvodynia, we think more about dermatoses, we think more about um, lichen sclerosis and neuralgias. But in patients that have deep pain with penetration, we think more about pelvic floor issues and or visceral issues. So the next thing that we do is a single digit exam with a well-lubricated finger. Don't even touch the uterus or cervix here yet, but we do a single-digit exam of the pelvic floor, mostly to see is the, are the pelvic floor muscles shortened, contracted, and does palpation of the pelvic floor, uh, pelvic floor reproduce any of the pain symptoms that they have? And then the very last thing we do is the speculum exam, looking for anatomic reasons, looking for pain in the uterus, pain in the adnexa. And the most critical thing that I teach our fellows is that with each step of the exam, it's really just one finger. The bimanual exam where you smash the uterus against the abdominal wall, that's really not useful for, a, for the evaluation of pelvic pain. That really just helps tell us, you know, is the uterus enlarged? Are there adnexal masses? But for a pelvic pain exam it's really just the single palpation both on the abdominal wall pelvic floor uterus bladder all of those areas to help you sort of map out where the pain is coming from and what reproduces in some way uh, or replicates in some way the pain that they have and so this is um, this slide is really just meant to point out that every single person um, has a complex group of muscles um, at the pelvic floor. They're uh, incredibly important for continence, uh, for uh, reproductive health. However, these, like any other muscle group, can be a source of myofascial pain and probably one of the most underdiagnosed causes of myofascial pain um, in both men and women. Um, I would say even as gynecologists, I see so many patients <clears throat> refer to me from other gynecologists who've never had a pelvic floor exam. And this is, I can guarantee you that our physical therapy friends do far better helping these patients than many of our medications and surgeries do. And it's really just about educating um, providers. The next thing I would say is that there are rare forms of endometriosis that we don't want to miss. So this, the pathophysiology of these rare forms of endometriosis is probably not the same as peritoneal disease. So one relatively common but rare form of endometriosis is that you can get endometriosis implants in the abdominal wall. The most common um, reason this occurs is following a cesarean section. And the most common symptom that women report is they have cyclic pain in their abdominal wall after having a c-section now it's been reported in other places like the umbilicus or spontaneously like with no prior surgeries or after laparoscopy but if you see a patient that says i have this new pain this lump on my belly that hurts every time i have a period after a c-section your top differential diagnosis should be uh, abdominal wall endometriosis and i would say um, my mode of imaging for this would be an mri but you can at least start with an ultrasound you can't always palpate them because Um, you know, unless a patient's very thin, it could be fairly deep in the abdominal wall or even affect the rectus muscles. And so you just need to have a high level of suspicion and then get some type of imaging. The other thing that I would say, even fellows, like I've trained fellows that have missed this before, we need to think about deeply infiltrative endometriosis in the rectovaginal septum. So in the space between the rectum and vagina, um, it's not uncommon that if you have deeply infiltrative endometriosis, it can affect this space. Um, The reason that I bring this up is, is that if you do like a regular speculum exam that you would for a pap smear you're going to miss this because the the speculum blades sort of end right at the back side of the cervix i mean most people don't have these are endometriosis implants on the actual cervix you often don't see that most often what you see are like blue or dark lesions in the posterior cul-de-sac so behind the cervix here so if you have a patient that has Um, Probably the most common symptom would be pain uh, with a deep penetration with intercourse is always make sure to look in this space between the cervix and the back of uh, the vagina uh, because you can certainly have endometriosis in that space. So is imaging helpful? Um, I would say that it really sort of depends on the symptoms. In the world of reproductive health, ultrasound is our go-to imaging. CT is very rarely used um, to look at uterus and ovaries because it really doesn't have good sensitivity or specificity. So ultrasound is probably the most helpful, but in specific patients with specific symptoms, some other imaging can be helpful just depending on your radiologist and what they feel um, they're most comfortable with. I would say probably the most common Uh, method of imaging to look for deeply infiltrative endo is MRI, if you're suspicious for that. Um, So imaging generally lacks, though, the resolution and accurate diagnosis of mild disease. You will not pick up stage one or stage two endometriosis on ultrasound alone. It really is mostly helpful to look for ovarian masses. This is an image of an ovarian endometrioma, which is uh, an ovarian cyst uh, due to endometriosis. is the typical appearance of this sort of ground glass appearance on imaging. And so it's useful to look at that, but it's not gonna pick up adhesions. It's not gonna pick up surface peritoneal disease. And unless you have a specially trained radiologist, it's probably not gonna pick up deeply infiltrative endometriosis. So in most centers, at least in the United States, and this definitely differs outside of the United States, MRI is probably the most helpful for deeply infiltrative endo. And the only other thing that I would say don't do, don't do a CA-125. It has been shown time and time again that the CA-125, although it is commonly elevated in women with endometriosis, is incredibly nonspecific and it does not have accurate sensitivity or specificity or predictive value to either diagnose or follow the disease. So it's not helpful in that road. So going back to Megan, so she has lower abdominal tenderness, her uterus is normal in size, um, no abnormal discharge, no palpable adnexal mass, and her, her pelvic ultrasound is normal. So, so she basically is a young reproductive age woman, painful periods, NSAIDs are not helping, her, her, she's not pregnant, and her imaging and exam are relatively normal. So what do you do? So do you reassure her that menstrual pain is normal? I can tell you that there are plenty of women that go to the doctor and they say it's normal it's normal to have pain with your periods, just, you know, go take a heating pad and go home. Um, Oral contraceptive pills to suppress the menses, do you give her some hydrocodone, or do you refer her immediately to a gynecologist for laparoscopy? So hopefully um, you would all agree that probably oral contraceptive pills as first-line therapy is something that's very appropriate to do without needing to go to surgery immediately, and that we don't treat painful periods with narcotics. Um, and don't tell patients that their pain is normal and they should just suffer with it. This is what I would consider to be sort of the triage as to when to refer to a gynecologist versus not. So if you do a pelvic ultrasound and the uterus is relatively large, I would say, me, I mean, this is not black and white, this is just my opinion, you won't find this in a book, but if it's generally enlarged, greater than 12 centimeters, if you have a fibroid that's bigger than 5 or, or persistent ovarian cysts, seen it on at least 2, ultrasounds at least two to three months apart um, that is greater than five centimeters or a palpable rectovaginal nodule, these patients should just get referred directly to gynecology, and I would not try to suppress them and see if their symptoms are better. But in all these patients, and Megan would be a perfect example of a patient that is perfectly appropriate to begin with empiric medical therapy without a surgical diagnosis of endometriosis. Um, And if they don't have improvement, then that's when you refer to a gynecologist. So, while Megan has started already with NSAIDs, I would say probably one of the most common things that I see with patients is is that they just don't max out on the dose and they don't, you know, use it timed and probably one of the most helpful things to advise women, particularly women that have regular menstrual periods so that their periods are predictable, is to start the NSAIDs two to three days before their onset of their periods. And that tends to be a lot more helpful than sort of just using as needed, NSAIDs during the peak of their pain or just once or twice a day. So if you start it before the onset of their periods, that tends to be most helpful. The other thing that people actually don't realize is that there have actually been studies to demonstrate that starting NSAIDs on schedule before the onset of your periods actually also has been shown to significantly reduce menstrual blood flow. So your periods are actually lighter if you start that. And so even just education about appropriate NSAID dosing can be be really helpful. Um, But Many women sort of do that appropriately, and their pain is still not helpful, and absolutely going directly to hormonal suppression in patients that don't have a contraindication is the most appropriate first-line therapy. So um, the way that uh, hormonal suppression works isn't entirely known, but we think that it decreases prostaglandin production, which is important in um, the cause of menstrual cramps. It induces atrophy of both utopic as well as ectopic endometrium, so both in the lining of the uterus as well as uh, endometriosis outside of the pelvis as well as induces and uh, in, reduces the inflammatory status but it's really really important for patients to understand that these medications are not cytoreductive they do not eliminate the endometriosis or the fibroids or whatever it is that you're treating and that recurrent symptoms are almost guaranteed once they stop the medication and so mo- more often than not you know you'll see women that you know say, well, Took it for six months or a year. I was doing great, so I didn't think I needed to be on it anymore. They came off, and then their, their symptoms eventually came back. Um, and in general, and we're not going to dive into sort of the head-to-head comparisons, but in general, the various medical treatment options of hormonal suppression are generally equally effective in the few head-to-head trials that have been done. And on average, about three-quarters of women, so about 75% of women, report adequate symptom c- control simply with hormonal suppression. And so the way that we choose the treatment really is based on cost, their preference, and side effects and things that they've tried before. But again, recurrence is common once you discontinue any type of medical therapy. So we'll go through just a couple other things about medical therapy. This is a pretty common scenario that we see. Patients got started on a triphasic or a cyclic birth control pill, so they have three weeks of active pill, they take a week of placebo, they menstruate on that, that week, and they say, well, I'm still having pain when I menstruate. So what do you do with that patient? Do you switch them to another birth control pill with a different like profile, maybe something that's a little bit less androgenic? Do you switch them to one, maybe one that's more progestin dominant? Do you switch them to the Nuvarine because maybe that might work better? Or do you use the same monophasic pill, but continuously? And so um, I would say that I'm regularly surprised. I see referrals in our pelvic pain clinic from general OBGYNs, which are in the room, that send them after they've done cyclic OCPs and then they, like their pain isn't better, they need surgery. So the most simple thing to do is get rid of the period. There's no physiologic reason that if a woman is suppressed that she needs to have a period. I think women, there's a lot of education that we can do to... Um, educate women and providers that it does not affect their long-term fertility, it does not affect their long-term health, and long-term suppression don't have a period at all. is actually a very effective method to reduce menstrually-associated pain. And so this is actually a pretty old study published almost 20 years ago looking at, in women that were on cyclic OCPs, you switch them to continuous, and, and then they stop having their period and they report an, a significant reduction in their pain. Um, the key thing about this is that you can really only do this with a monophasic pill. So anything that says try, don't use that continuously because the dose of progestin changes and sometimes the estrogen in each week. And it's that change in dose that, um, that, uh, that causes you to bleed and not. And so you need to have a monophasic pill, one that basically where the pills are the same exact dose every every month. Um, If you use the NuvaRing, I think another nice thing to know is that the NuvaRing actually has enough hormone. I mean, the product label says to um, keep it in the vagina for three weeks at a time, take it out, and then have a menstrual period. There's actually enough hormone in there to just keep it in for four weeks at a time, take it out four weeks, and put a new ring in, and so you can use that as another continuous method. Um, Breakthrough bleeding is the most common side effect of uh, continuous-use OCP, so about 38% of women won't have breakthrough bleeding but the rest will have anywhere between spotting to uh, light bleeding almost daily. This is the most frustrating side effect that we deal with, with continuous use OCPs. There are a couple different options. Sometimes we switch the pill. um, Sometimes we increase the dose in the estrogen. Sometimes, the most most common reason is that they just become so atrophic, their lining becomes so thin that they just bleed from a thin lining. And so giving them a one-week break from the pill, allowing them to have a menstrual period actually allows uh, their own ovaries to sort of wake up make a little bit of estrogen, stabilize that lining, and then you go on. So for most of my patients, I would say I tell them to be on continuous use for a total of three months. So four packs will equal three months, have a one-week break in their menstrual, um, in their in their pills, and then have a menstrual period, and then do like three-month cycles. But you, so you just have to Uh, work with patients to see what's helpful. So now Megan tells you that her best friend recently had a levonorgestrel IUD placed and she's very happy with it, but her friend doesn't have pelvic pain and is wondering if this is an option for her. And she, like we said, she's a nullagravid, she hasn't had a period before. And so what I would tell you is that there's a lot of misconceptions about the levonorgestrel IUD You can absolutely use it in women that have never never been pregnant. We use it in teens um, and uh, nulliparous patients. Um, It is specifically FDA-approved for both contraception as well as heavy menstrual periods. Um, It releases 20 micrograms of levonorgestrel a day, and there's newer formulations now that have uh, less hormone in it. But um, while it's not FDA-approved, there are multiple studies that have shown that it's a very effective treatment for painful periods, and it actually has been shown to be an treatment for endometriosis, and even there's one study that compared it to a GnRH agonist um, and showed equivalence between an I this levonorgestrel IUD and a GnRH agonist. Um, the main advantages: it's low maintenance. There's minimal systemic side effects. So the amount of hormone that gets into the bloodstream is about 10% of what you would get with an oral medication. So for those patients that really suffer from side effects of any oral method, this might be a good option for them. The only thing that I would say though is it does not consistently prevent ovulation. So if your patient is sort of prone to ovarian cysts or functional ovarian cysts, this might not be the best option for them. So this table sort of summarizes, I think, what most experts consider to be first, second, and third-line treatments, I would say, in your back pocket, if you're comfortable, or your primary care office, your patient's primary care office, using some kind of combined estrogen, progestin, contraceptive, whether it's a pill, vaginal, is best. Um, I would favor continuous use rather than cyclic use. The other sort of favorite medication, which actually is FDA approved for the treatment of endometriosis, is norethindrone, otherwise known as agestin. I would not use Um, the mini pill, which is 0.35 milligrams of norethindrone. That probably isn't sufficient uh, to control bleeding in most patients, but it is something that you can try. Mostly we start out with five milligrams a day and can go up to 15 milligrams if their bleeding isn't well controlled. Therapies that should not be offered at this stage, meaning that in women that do not have a surgical diagnosis of endometriosis, I would not recommend the use of a GNRH agonist or antagonist. I would not recommend the use of danazole, which is a testosterone derivative, and I would not recommend the use of aromatase inhibitors. I think these really should be reserved for more complex patients that have a surgical diagnosis and maybe in a in a referral clinic or a specialty clinic for endometriosis. Um, the other thing, like I'd said before, you know, refer before you use these therapies, but also refer immediately if there's a persistent adnexal mass, uterine mass, or any symptoms um, that are suggestive of either obstruction of the urinary tract or bowel tract. So if they have like significant bowel symptoms or urinary symptoms, endometriosis can absolutely invade the bowel. It can obstruct the ureters. Um, It's rare. Um, It's not the most common cause for having bowel or bladder symptoms, but if you're suspicious for it, it's definitely something that you should refer to a gynecologist. Um, the other thing that I just wanted to point out, and you might have seen lots of ads, there is a newly approved. Um, this is probably one of the first approved met- medications for endometriosis that has come on the market in the past decade. It's called Elagolix, um, and it's sim- it's a GnRH agonist. But the difference between this and other GnRH agonists is it is a pill, and so you don't have to take an injection. And it is comes in two different doses, so that you can have a dose-dependent reduction in estrogen, and so. The difference between injectable generative agonists is is just a maximal dose that has a maximal suppression of um, estrogen, and this allows you to sort of have graded suppression. And so it's approved, um, so the two doses are 150 milligrams daily versus 200 milligrams twice a day. Um, The 150 milligrams daily has been recently FDA approved uh, for the use of this medication for up to two years without any add back therapy, Um, whereas the 200 milligrams twice a day is only approved for six months, like an uh, injectable um, antagonist or agonist. Um, All of these medications are approved for the treatment of painful periods as well as chronic pelvic pain and the 200 milligrams twice a day is also actually FDA approved for painful intercourse because it had effect in that. I think the key thing about this, it's difficult to know quite what its role is going to be. uh, the main thing about it is it is not a contraceptive. There were patients that got pregnant in the trials um, on this medication. It's rare, but it does happen. And their only advice at this point is to use a barrier method, such as uh, condoms or uh, something like that, because the problem is is that um, the mechanism of action is to suppress the estrogen, and we don't know quite yet how effective it will be if you give add-back therapy. Um, and so I think that's that's gonna be a pretty important barrier. So what about surgical therapies? Uh, this is not because you guys will be doing surgical therapies, but just to understand when we refer for surgical therapies. Um, and I would say that the general reason to refer is to evaluate and or treat suspected endometriosis that is refractory to other treatments. So initiating medication in patients that have suspected disease without evidence of deeply infiltrative disease is appropriate, but in those patients that don't get better, they should be referred. Um, to improve or relieve symptoms in patients who are interested in pregnancy, because all of our medication, all of our medical therapies are currently contraceptives. Um, or they're unable to tolerate medical therapy, and then to investigate a suspected or persistent mass or deeply infiltrative uh, endometriosis. So I bring up these pictures mostly to point out is that endometriosis actually looks, it has a very variable appearance. Sometimes it looks red and vascular. Sometimes it's uh, more common to look pigmented. In adolescents. it's actually more common to look uh, clear and vesicular. And so it's really important that um, if you see patients that, have this condition that you really refer to a surgeon who's experienced with the evaluation and management of endometriosis because it's not always a straightforward surgery and it's not always recognized very easily. There are a lot of things that we can see in the pelvis that are often misdiagnosed as endometriosis. So this, you know, to, uh, to just any, um, surgeon or non-surgeon. This looks quite similar, but this is not endometriosis. This ended up being carbon deposits from prior surgery, Um, and this is not endometriosis. This is a benign condition called endosalpingiosis that really um, isn 't thought to be associated with pelvic pain, there are a lot of other things that can be misdiagnosed as endometriosis. so the main point is is that surgical biopsy is really required for definitive diagnosis. Uh, the positive predictive value our ability to look at a lesion and be accurate is only about fifty to sixty percent, even with experienced surgeons um, and so and it 's also important. Uh, to recognize that up to half of women that have pelvic pain will not have any findings at the time of laparoscopy. And so as someone that's referring or seeing these patients <clears throat> in the community, I think it's really important that you refer to GYN surgeons um, with expertise in the treatment of endometriosis because there's absolutely no role in this day and age for diagnostic laparoscopy alone. So if you send a patient to a doctor that said, I looked, uh, it looked like endo. I didn't do a biopsy. I didn't excise it. Don't send other patients back to that physician, because I think it's agreed upon in multiple uh, expert societies that diagnostic laparoscopy alone, just to diagnose it and then to treat it medically, is not considered appropriate. And if a patient is to undergo surgery then and endometriosis is found, then they should have excision and or ablation of those lesions. So, uh, <laughs> excision and or ablation of endometrium is actually pretty effective. There have been a couple randomized controlled trials that have looked where they actually were able to do sort of diagnostic laparoscopy alone and not treat versus treat. And in general, um, patients reported significant improvements in their pain following the surgery at six months. You can actually see there's, I always find this interesting, there's actually a pretty profound placebo effect. So in patients, so this is at three months, patients that had a look only versus treatment of their endometriosis actually reported similar pain. And it wasn't until three months where those patients that had, you know, diagnostic laparoscopy alone went back to their baseline pain, but the patients that had uh, laser ablation had sustained improvement in their pain. And so about 63% of treated patients reported improvement at six months versus 23% that did not have treatment. And the average reduction in their pain scores went from about 8.5 to 4.5. I know it's really hard to see this, but the main point of this slide is is that endometriosis, though, is considered a chronic condition with a high risk of recurrence after surgery. Pain recurs in about 25% of women that are untreated after surgery, and this generally occurs within 12 to 24 months. The last thing that we want, though, to see is a patient that gets the surgery every two years for the rest of her reproductive years. I've certainly seen patients that have had 10, 12, 13 surgeries for endometriosis. It's It's I'm sure it's a complex um, problem both you know between the, both the patients as well as the surgeons that they see, but that really, really, um, I think you no know, experts believe that that is appropriate. So in general, experts agree that while there isn't <clears throat> a lot of data that, that have actually looked at this prospectively, there does tend to be a reduction in both the time as well as the risk of recurrent pain after surgery, if you put patients on hormonal suppression, so absolutely in those patients that have endometriosis, postoperative hormonal suppression should absolutely be the gold standard. Um, one option for hormonal suppression is the levonorgestrel IUD. This is something that you know we really encourage patients to consider is that if we find endometriosis at the time of their surgery, place an IUD at the end of the surgery. And this has been shown to significantly reduce the risk of recurrent uh, painful periods. So the risk reduction was 0.22 compared to no IUD after surgery. And there was no, in patients that had either an IUD versus a GRNH agonist, there was um, no difference in the average reduction. So an um, Uh, levonorgestrel IUD was just as effective in reducing menstrual pain um, as compared to a GnRH agonist, but obviously far better tolerated. And so what about hysterectomy? Again, I know that you won't be doing a hysterectomy, but many of these patients in all of your clinics will say, just take it all out. I'm so tired of this. And if it's you know, what it what I need to alleviate my pain, I'm willing to do that. And I've seen 22, 23, 24-year-old women that are so desperate for pain relief that hysterectomy is sort of what they want. And hysterectomy in general is a safe surgery for most women. Most women are satisfied. They report <clears throat> overall improvement in their symptoms in general amongst women that have hysterectomy for abnormal bleeding and other uh, types of symptoms. But there are risks. This is not a you know, risk-free surgery, there's risk for morbidity, there's risk for loss of fertility, especially in those patients that don't have an improvement of, the, you know, they don't achieve their goals of improving their pain, and then now they've had a hysterectomy, and they're still no better off than they were before, and a risk of uh, persistent pain. So this was a really lovely systematic review that was published um, about <clears throat> six years ago out of the Netherlands, um, This uh, PhD through I think her doctorate summarized the literature at the time about how effective was hysterectomy for uh, pelvic pain and how frequently did pain occur after hysterectomy. And basically what she found was is that um, anywhere between 6.7 to 31.9%, on average is about 25% of women that had hysterectomy had some level of persistent pain after surgery. And anywhere between one and 15% on average, about 5% of women had a new pain after hysterectomy that they didn't have before the surgery. If you look specifically at hysterectomy for uh, women that have endometriosis, again, it's not a cure. This was a retrospective study that looked at the incidence of recurrent surgery, like a second surgery within seven years of the first surgery. If a patient had an operative laparoscopy alone, about half of the women had a second surgery. If they had a hysterectomy without removal of the ovaries, about 20 Uh, 2% of women had a second surgery, and even if you take out the ovaries, it is not a cure. Close to 10% of women, you take out their uterus, you take out their ovaries, they have another surgery because of persistent pain. Um, And so it is is really important for patients to know that it is not a guaranteed cure. So before considering hysterectomy, I think it's really critically important that we uh, recognize that pain is multifactorial. There are multiple organ systems involved. Uh, The risk of persistent pain is as high as 25%, and it's really critically important to see and evaluate and treat all sources of pain before moving towards this, um, before moving towards the surgery. This um, slide is really just meant to sort of Um, summarize our sort of conceptual model of sort of how we think about pelvic pain. You know, we look very carefully for these peripheral factors like endometriosis or other things that could be causing both peripheral as well as central sensitization. It's not a topic in this particular um, talk, but we know that um, organs talk to each other and that there is a lot of crosstalk between the visceral organs, the bladder, the bowel, the musculoskeletal system, and inflammation, pain in one organ can cause similar symptoms to in another. We know that a lot of genetic factors, environmental factors can all influence this. So this is obviously like any chronic pain condition, a very complex disease, and we really need to try to do our best to try to um, continue to work and try to understand all of these areas. So last couple things, I just wanted to sort of give you a couple clinical pearls about sort of how do we put together, how do we think about central sensitization, widespread pain in patients that have endometriosis and pelvic pain. These are the red flags that I would say, you know, we see a lot of patients that have chronic pain, but if you see these things, these are not, cannot be attributed just to having a chronic pain syndrome. So blood in the stool, new bowel symptoms over the age of 50, irregular bleeding over the age of 40, Uh, Bleeding after intercourse. New pain in menopause cannot be attributed to endometriosis or most gynecologic conditions um, and, you know, uh, make you worry about other more uh, concerning findings. A Pelvic mass and, of course, um, suicidal ideation or any sort of uh, change in character or severity of pain. And I always was reminded by my fellowship um, director is that you know, just because she has pelvic pain or endometriosis doesn't mean she can't rupture her appendix, doesn't mean she can't get, you know, uh, some other acute source of pain. And so you really need to reevaluate every time a patient has a pain flare. So some clinical implications. Sorry, I didn't mean to go that. So clinical implications of central Changes in pain processing, specifically in women's health. Um, I think this was a really lovely uh, review article that was published by um, uh, Braun and Dr. Uh, Katie Vincent in 2014 in Human Reproduction Update. Um, It was. um, I I think there are a lot of really nice things in this review article, and one of these nice things was that this. um, There are really a lot of different ways that you can get to a state of pain, and any given the pathway for any given patient isn't necessarily the same from patient to patient. And so in some patients, you know, peripheral pelvic pathology might be the dominant factor. In other patients, it might be musculoskeletal. In other patients, there might be more of an inflammatory. And every single patient has a different combination and really behooves us. I mean, we don't have all the knowledge and the tools to be able to really understand this quite yet, but that there, this is a very heterogeneous population, um, and we can't assume that... that every, any single treatment is gonna work for every patient because of the complexity of this disease. The other thing that I wanted to point out is that chronic overlapping pain conditions are highly prevalent in this population. So you've probably all heard about COPCs. Um, There are a lot of different pain conditions that we know that often coexist, things like painful bladder syndrome, irritable bowel syndrome, um, vulvodynia, uh, temporal mandibular disorder, chronic low back pain, might rain headaches, um, as well as endometriosis. And that when a standard treatment fails for any given condition, you really need to reconsider the diagnosis and look for overlapping pain conditions. These are predominantly female. We know all of these conditions are more common in women than they are in men, and that we know that any given patient, as soon as they have one condition, they have a higher lifetime, a higher lifetime risk of developing another one of these pain conditions. Um, we also know that these patients with centralized pain probably respond very differently to therapy. This was a study that we published last year looking at opioid use and daily pain scores after hysterectomy. And what we did was stratify patients based on their baseline um, fibromyalgia score, so sort of how widespread pain they had. And basically what we found is, is that the more widespread pain you had, you had greater opioid consumption for longer periods of time. Having had the same exact surgery as a patient that had lower uh, fibromyalgia scores, and that despite using higher uh, levels of opioid use, they had a higher postoperative pain as well as slower recovery. So these patients just don't respond to treatment the same way that patients that don't have this. Uh, This is a lovely study um, that was performed by Dr. Uh, Brummett, who's here, Uh, giving a lecture exactly at this time somewhere else looking at the role of centralized pain in patients that undergo knee and hip arthroplasty and so in patients that have the same exact surgery the higher your fibromyalgia score was before your surgery Um, the more likely you were to have persistent pain in your knee or hip uh, six months after the surgery. We've looked at this preliminarily in hysterectomy patients, and um, the the pattern is the same. And so patients that have centralized pain are less likely to respond to surgery than patients that don't. Um, It's also important to recognize that treating early to prevent transition from acute to chronic pain can actually be critically important. Um, We see a lot of patients that have suffered from symptoms for a very long time. Uh, there's quite a bit of data that says that specifically within endometriosis patients, the average delay in diagnosis from the time of symptom onset to when they see doctors to when they get a diagnosis is somewhere around eight years. So anywhere between seven and 12 years, these patients see a lot of doctors, have a lot of misdiagnoses before they get to the right treatment. <clears throat> and this was a abstract that was uh, presented at the World Congress of Endometriosis a couple of years ago by Dr. Vinson that showed that the delay in diagnosis has actually been correlated with the degree of brain changes. And so again, a delay is incredibly important. So the key points are summarized here. I think um, we're probably close to time at this point. Um, and so we'll go into questions. I mean, I think The general theme of this entire conference is that one size doesn't fit all. Every single patient is not exactly the same as others. We really need to think about the individual pathology, their goals, their coping, their resilience. And as a gynecologist, if all I did was think about the pelvis, (coughs) excuse me, and I saw a patient like this, I could probably cure her. But if I didn't think about everything else that was going on, I mean, these patients are incredibly different, and the treatments that I would try and someone on the left are going to be incredibly different than the ones on the right. So thank you. I'm happy to take any questions. I'm sorry we went right to the end of the time, but I'll stay after as well if people need to leave. Yes? What is your threshold for referring a patient to pain management? Um, Sorry, that's a really good question. So the question was, what is my threshold for referring a patient to pain management? Um, I think that... I would love to have more collaboration with local pain management within our community. I think that um, I think that in any patient who is refractory to usual treatments, and/or you think you don't have the right diagnosis, getting other clinicians involved, whether it's pain management or whether it's the GI doctors, the PM&R doctors, I think it depends on the individual patient, but. I mean, even as gynecologists, you know, I represent a tiny fraction of sort of how gynecologists could be comfortable in the management of sort of chronic widespread pain, but most of them are not. And I think most of them would be very happy to have pain management teams that are willing to see these patients. I think there are a lot of, I don't know why, there are a lot of barriers, I think, particularly in women, where there is often the presumption that if it's pain in a woman, it's like because of her uterus and ovaries. And I've seen a lot of patients that have sort of been shut out by clinics and say, oh, well you just go need to see the gynecologist and there really just aren't enough doctors across disciplines to sort of treat chronic pain and not just assume that it's a reproductive issue. So you mentioned uh, the sensitization. I think the frustration on my part Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. and they're wondering if they could have maybe preserved yeah. fertility in some way yeah. uh, before, I mean, yeah. you know, historically, historically, uh whatever, but just seeing that sooner. Yes, I'm very frustrated by that, too. I, I can't tell you the number of, I, so, the, you know, the the question, I mean, there's a lot of education that needs to happen within gynecology, within women's health. I think as a surgical subspecialty, like many surgical subspecialties, you know, we have a scalpel, we have a hammer; everything looks like a nail. That's the treatment that they're going to get. And I think, particularly in the United States, and I speak to a lot of colleagues like in other countries, the the jump to surgery is often so quick. Um, and I think there is a little bit of a cultural difference here, like versus other countries. But um, I mean, that's that's on our part. I mean, that's on our part as gynecologists. Um, I think maybe <clears throat> if we built better bridges between other pain specialists, you know, before. These patients, you know, get to that point. I think that that's partly us, but also sort of building these bridges. Um, in regards to some of the overlapping pain conditions, you know, I think I'm a physical therapist and we often see these diagnoses all the time of IC and endo. Mm-hmm. And what's, I guess, your viewpoint on? the true IC versus like crosstalk or inflammation. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's hard because we're trying to educate patients mm-hmm. and be more conservative, but they're <coughs> seeing a urologist and they're seeing a gynecologist. Right. And it's like, no, right. you have to do six installations. And if those don't work, you have right. to do more. Like, right. what's your thoughts on that? Well, <coughs> I, I would say that I think it's tough. I think the the science is a little bit too premature for us to have enough information to give really good clinical guidance. I think it's very there's there's definitely evidence that not only is there crosstalk at the level of the spinal cord, there's probably also common genetic factors, disposition to predisposition to developing pain that are also contributing. Um, what I would tell patients though, I mean what I do tell patients is that Maybe it doesn't matter that much because whether it started in the bladder or it started in the uterus or it started as endo, we just need to treat all sources of pain. And it's sort of like an onion, and we just need to pull it layer by layer, every every direction that we can get at it until we um, until we get to that point. Now there are people. I mean, I th- and I think maybe 10, 15 years from now we might be better at saying, well, what are the risk factors? Like, how do we stop it before it gets to that point? But we're not there yet. Um, and I think just for patients to have that education that these, can, <clears throat> these conditions overlap, probably both in underlying etiology and pathophysiology, but also treatment, I mean, 80% of what I do for <clears throat> pelvic pain, whether it's like endometriosis related or IC related, is, is overlaps, and, and so, it's frustrating, but um, but I, I think that education is probably the biggest help. <coughs> On her knee. Oh, really? <coughs> um, well, the, so there is I, there are case reports of I think endometriosis in every single space in the body. Um, that's been reported both inside and outside of the pelvis, except I forget there's like one place that it's never been reported in the body. I always forget what that location is, but not maybe the knee. We think that, so we think that um, probably not endometriosis is actually all the same disease. So retrograde menstruation probably explains a lot of the intraperitoneal, intrapelvic endometriosis, and that's the most common that we see, but we actually definitely see it you know, in the diaphragm, we see it, um, you know, in all parts of the body. And we think that probably those other areas are probably have more to do with metaplastic um, changes. So they sort of transform from the cells that are there rather than than arising from the pelvis. But that is fascinating. Yeah. I mean, we, we see patients that have pleural endometriosis. They have collapsed lungs every month, you know, because of, you know, bleeding into their thoraces, so that they're all possible, but they're rare. Great, well, thank you very much. You're welcome to email me if you have additional questions.